Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Ron Harris for a conversation about the evolution of companies in the Eastern Mediterranean. Dr. Harris is the Kalman Lebowski Professor of Law and History and former Dean at the Faculty of Law in Tel Aviv University. He's written many publications over his career, including the book, Going the Distance, Eurasian Trade and the Rise of the Business Corporation, 1400-1700, which was published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the call, Ron. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Andrew. Yeah, it's great to chat with you today, Ron. Okay, um, so we are chatting about the evolution of companies in the Eastern Mediterranean. So let's start with uh, definitions uh, type company that I think will help create some parameters and a paradigm for this uh, conversation today. Um, how how would you define company uh, uh, companies as it pertains to this conversation? So I would say that company is a very loose, very wide term that can encompass many types of enterprises, many types of many types of firms. Uh, sole ownerships will probably not be counted as companies. Everything else, for my needs, will be considered as companies. Once you move a step up in formalization, you move into the era and uh, a, a realm of corporations about which we can talk maybe later on. Okay. Um, when, when you've done a lot of your research on this topic, um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, I know you've looked at various parts all over the, you know, in various parts of the world, but we're talking about the Eastern Mediterranean today. Um, what what century approximately do, does the evidence around trade and companies, if we want to call it that, starts to become more more ample? What's a what's a good kind of century to to start in in the in the conversation, and then we're going to kind of work our way through a evolutionary type um, uh, linear path. So the kinds of evidence that we have or scholars have in order to kind of answer your question is shipwrecks found by archaeologists in the bottom of the Mediterranean, of Eastern Mediterranean, Uh, excavations of goods whose origins is not domestic, which suggests some sort of long distance trade and presumably also maritime long distance trade. And you have different types of texts that, that indicate the existence of a maritime trade in the Eastern Mediterranean. It can be anything from holy texts, like the Bible, to literary texts that could be found in ancient Greece, to some more official texts. So we have different types of indications, and probably things can go back in time, deep into history. Uh, I would start around 500 BC when we have more evidence, more solid evidence, particularly about the aspects that I'm interested in, which are not just the mere existence of trade, but something about the way in which trade was organized. Okay, so let's 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 start there. So f- around 500 BCE, it's the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, what was? Can you can you paint a picture about what trade what trade was going on in the Eastern Mediterranean? in that uh in that period of time and it's a very broad question so really you know really go at it in the way that you want to go at it from an answers perspective but 
what were the you know what were the uh, sectors uh, you know a term we would use now right what were the main sectors what was the transport like what were the you know the territories doing business uh, what territories were some uh, groups uh, what territories were some territories doing with other ter territories you know what I mean right so uh, can you kind of you know paint that picture of it's the uh, 500s the the fifth century BCE it's the Eastern Mediterranean what was going on for trade uh, we as we get into the uh, Athenian and Greek cultures era we know more about trade we definitely have indications for trade before that let's say the Phoenician trade. The Phoenicians were going mostly east to west and would not mm. trade far west, as I believe some of your podcasts may have covered. Uh, the Greeks were colonizing different islands in the eastern Mediterranean. The Greeks were aiming at trading with the Egyptian kingdoms to the south of the Mediterranean, uh, with some of the Mesopotamian uh, civilizations to the east of the Mediterranean. So, so uh, gradually, from very small ships carrying mostly high-value, uh, low-volume uh, uh, goods, there is a, a, a development into bigger ships, more complicated organizational forms, into the uh, uh, shipping of more uh, high-volume or high-weight uh, uh, goods, which was something that was unconceivable earlier on when transportation costs were higher. So. As transportation costs go down, more and more goods are getting into the circulation. And naturally, everybody wanted to get whatever they, they, they could not either grow themselves because of climate or soil issues or things that they did not have the kind of techniques or technologies to produce themselves or not to produce at high quality. So you see various types of more tropical goods, desert goods, uh, goods that were produced in Egypt that are making their way into the uh, Greek islands and mainland Greece. In those early uh, centuries, in this period, did can you can you describe to what extent a formalized structure existed around companies, if anything, and did things like let's say taxes exist back then? These are clearly merchants they're they're selling products right did they have were they did they consider themselves to have a formalized company in those you know in the let's call it the first to fifth centuries bce in the eastern mediterranean uh, were they taxed as they were selling products can you speak a little bit about that yeah so so i believe that they were taxed because once you have a ruler, where you have a territorial ruler, that territorial ruler needs taxations, needs income in order to sustain uh, uh, the dynasty, in order to sustain the capital of the dynasty, the palaces, and to wage wars. So taxation was there from a relatively early period. More is know about, known about taxations because bureaucracies that collect taxes also leave some records. I didn't study myself taxation in this area, but I know that it exists. When I'm trying to study the organizational forms, things are getting more complicated because these are not always being well kept. When you look at archaeological sites, what you find is something, some a, a, a data about the ships, some data about the goods, but you normally do not find data about the organizational forms. So you have often indirect indications about the the organizational forms, 
let's say, literary uh, uh, sources. Uh, when you have some legal sources, you have some details in these legal sources, let's say, in some legal texts, in some legal codes. And I think that what I get from these sources is that organizational forms, uh, uh, the basic need for organizational solution was there from a relatively early period in time. Once a merchant doesn't want to travel himself, he has to find a way to be involved in trade by employing others. And once you employ mm-hmm. others, you can call them agents, you can call them employees or whatever, uh, uh, your labor force, you have to have some sort of an arrangement with that labor force, and you would like to have some level of control over that labor force and some level of monitoring. And in order to do this, you have to use some organizational measures. So one, uh, uh, I would say, one sphere in which you need organizations is in employing labor. The other sphere is in financing the enterprise, financing the trade. If you are as a merchant, are well constrained, you have some limits to your wealth, or if you do not want to invest all of your wealth in one ship because you want to uh, limit your risks or spread your risks, you'll have to cooperate with others that will put money into the project. And once you have those investors, you have to set up the, ter- the organizational terms on the financial level. So you have the labor, labor level and the financial labor level, uh, and sometimes they are being treated separately in different organizational forms. Sometimes they are being combined together mm. in a single organizational form. And you get some examples of this, uh, more and more of these examples as you move forward, let's say from the Greek into the Roman period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's, the, um, what's, what's an early uh, example that comes to mind for you on the, the lending part? So, so some kind of contract that might be in the, in the records, some kind of lending that occurred in, the, in this early period uh, to finance a, uh, a transaction or an expedition. We could probably call it that if it's, if it's, a, uh, if it's a ship that's gonna sail across the sea. So I came across what's known as the Mosiris Papyrus, the papyrus that was uh, 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 discovered in Egypt, probably in the Nile Delta, some probably 30 years ago. Uh, it made its way into Vienna in Austria uh, through some uh, un- not fully known uh, uh, channels. So the exact place of its, uh, its discovery in Egypt is not known, but it was dated to the second century uh, uh, CE to the Nile Delta, probably not that far from Alexandria. And uh, the Mosaris Papyrus is an, ex- is an exclusive example of long distance trade, the longest distance trade of the of antiquity, which is the uh, trade between the Mediterranean or Rome even and India. So you get in this papyrus a, a, a specific mention of a specific transaction, maybe a generic type of transaction, maybe more, maybe more specific, uh, which covers at least a segment of a long distance trade all the way from Rome to Alexandria, down the Nile, up until the Nile uh, 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 knee around Luxor, and then across the desert, across the Egyptian desert, uh, into the Red Sea, and from the Red Sea port down the Red Sea, into the Arabian Sea, and all the way to southern India, to the to Muziris, which is considered to be located not far from modern-day modern day Kochi or Kuchin 
in Kerala state of southern India. So this is an example for a long distance trade. And within this uh, transaction, the papyrus mentions a law. Mm. And then there is a lot of interpretive work that was done by papyrologists and by others trying to understand what was the exact nature of this loan. Uh, I can get into the details of this debate or provide you with some uh, kind of overview of what this uh, transaction was about. Probably a loan transaction. Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. what's called a C-loan transaction. A C-loan mm-hmm. transaction is more complicated than a regular loan transaction in the sense that in a C-loan transaction, you don't have to pay back if your ship and all cargo or boat were lost at sea. Mm. Which means that you allocate the risk of sea loss from the merchant to the lender. That's a relatively more advanced type of loan than a regular loan in which there is no separate allocation of different risks. Here you, you separate different risks. The merchant carries the business risks. The maritime risks are being borne by the lender. So that's probably what's been reflected in the Mozaris papyrus. And, and this is something that is alluded to in, in some other sources, Greek and Roman sources. So the, the, the type of transaction of the organization form is already known from other sources before the discovery of the papyrus. Now the question is whether this is a good match between the legal sources and the papyrus, which is a specific transaction for a specific probably a specific, maybe generic transaction. Uh, so, so there is some debate as to whether this match is perfect or not. It's most li- likely, in my view, based on what I read and uh, try to understand, indeed, a sea loan. So that's interesting in the sense that sea loans were, uh, as much as we know, invented, so to speak, in the Eastern Mediterranean. They uh, mm. have definitely been, there, there is definitely evidence for their existence in maritime Athens, maybe also in the Phoenician time, that's less clear. Uh, and for sure, they were in wide use uh, during the uh, uh, long era of Roman control of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean or the Mediterranean as a whole. And here we have an example of the use of this Ceylon uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, going out of the Mediterranean into the Indian Ocean. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's uh, uh, what a find, what a what an archaeological find, some, yeah. something like that, right? And it paints the the picture um, a, a bit on some of the trade that was happening uh, internationally um, in that uh, period of time. And it sounds like the uh, sea loans is is almost its own topic. Like really, like like there's probably so much about just the 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 the, the lending, maritime lending. Um, okay, so. The early period, it sounds like it was very um, nascent and natural and primitive in that someone, uh, a merchant is selling a product. At some point, you said a merchant may not want to do it themselves, like they might not want to do the trip themselves. So they enter into contracts uh, with, with, with agents. And then that's sort of the form that's starting to form the concept of an employee when you're when you're when you're getting into these contracts, it might not technically be an employee. That's probably a term, a neologism uh, that you know that gets it gets created much later on and, and is regulated. But back, but it's starting to have that the kind of the contours. And then you mentioned the the, the loans are occurring. So as we as we go through this um, period, uh, when in the Eastern Mediterranean would you say 
more formalized structures begin to exist around companies? So what you can see, I think, in the Moserus Papyrus, if I pick it up from there, mm-hmm. is that the most challenging uh, of the organizational cha- uh, challenges uh, uh, that one can find on a spectrum. Because as you mentioned, employees were used uh, uh, as societies emerged. Uh, once you have agriculture, sometimes you have employees. Once you have a small-scale urbanization, you might have some employees. But it's easier to control these employees because you can see them. They work in your field or they work in your workshop and you can actually look at them and monitor them and make sure that they're more or less, more or less disciplined and more or less productive. Uh, so this is something that probably from the Neolithic Revolution and on started developing. Controlling your agents or employees on the city is a much more complicated task because you cannot see them. You cannot closely monitor them. You have to uh, somehow either trust them or have some sort of a, a monitoring scheme uh, or have some sort of an incentive scheme that would uh, uh, kind of create, uh, uh, reduce the conflict of interest between them and you, between the agent and the principal as economists call it. Mm-hmm. So, so what you can see, for example, in the Mozarius Papyrus, is that employees are being, uh, 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 agents are being used in different parts of these, in different segments, along the Nile, across the desert, on the Red Sea. But they're not usually being used by themselves because it's harder to monitor a single employee or a single agent. What you see uh, alluded to in the Mozarius Papyrus is a network, an mm-hmm. infrastructure. So the more agents you have out there, the more you as a merchant work in a network, the more likely are you are to reduce your uh, 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 reliance on the need to trust blindly your employee. And the more you can rely on the system, on the organizational system to allow you to do this, let's say by agents telling you what's going on with other agents and your station representatives in, let's say in a port in the Red Sea reporting to you about an agent that just crossed the desert, making sure that he arrived on time, he did not lose any of the goods. So, so you're, you're building up an entire a, a infrastructure around mm. these organizational forms. And once you have these, uh, the organizational forms function more efficiently, as one could say. And, and you can see this, the, the, the more developed the Roman Empire is, the more you see this. The growing level of sophistication of organizational forms, of networks, and of infrastructures, the more trade you see going on. If you are talking about the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. I think that the peak of trade at the, at the, in the Mediterranean, as one, as much as one can infer this from shipwrecks, is the second century CE. You have nearly 350 shipwrecks dated to that century. If you go like 400 years before, you may have may have just dated 20, 30 or 40 shipwrecks to that century. So you see an increase in the number of shipwrecks. Uh, uh, and now we have, uh, I think, 1700 shipwrecks that were already founded, excavated, dated, and we'll probably get more as time develops. So you get you can get this peak of trade based on shipwrecks. This might sound counterintuitive mm. in the sense that you think that the more ships were lost, maybe something bad is going on with trade. But as I understand it, my interpretation is shipwrecks 
are a good proxy for the volume of trade rather than the other way around. Hmm. Okay. So uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, a lot can be uh, inferred uh, when you're doing these excavations and archaeological work on uh, uh, on uh, shipwrecks. So, what's the next big um, milestone in the evolution of companies uh, in the in this case in the Eastern Mediterranean? Is it is it the is it the structure of a corporation at that point, or or would you say something? comes you know in a shape and form before companies were uh incorporating or people were creating corporations so i would say that the next big step is with the rise of islam so we're, when we're talking about the roman empire you can find in the roman empire high level of sophisticated economic activity including maritime trade you can see different types of loans of employment you can see mm-hmm. partnerships you do not see in any of the Roman sources what was later called commenda or kirad, which is a kind of a nascent limited partnership. The, co- the commenda is a name used in Italy, different Italian cities in the kind of a, the commercial revolution of the late Middle Ages use different terms. Commenda is one of the more common names for Italy. In, in the Islam, a few centuries before, you can see an organization called Mudaraba or Kirad. The general idea here is that you have one party investing money, the or goods, the other party investing labor, this willingness to travel to risky places over the high seas, maybe losing his life, definitely spending years in the business. So this uh, 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 collaboration, but What's unique in what you find in Islam is that this collaboration is based on what we call today equity investment. That is, they split the profits. Mm. What you could find in earlier periods was that the agent was getting fixed pay, fixed wage, fixed salary based on time or distance or whatever. Mm. Here, the pay for the uh, worker, for the agent, is based on the performance of the company. The more you make profit, the more you get as an agent traveling abroad and coming back. And that's something that has developed a, a clearly in Islamic sources. There mm-hmm. are some uh, indications that uh, kind of the origins of these Islamic institutions could maybe be tracked in Talmudic law, in Jewish Talmudic law, or in Byzantine law. But Abu Yudovich of Princeton, who was the prime uh, scholar of the of the Curad Comenta says that there were significant differences between what you could find before Islam and what you could find in Islam. So this is an important milestone in the development of companies, the appearance of the Curad Comenta. Islam was the first to use it in the Eastern Mediterranean and overland in the Mediterranean as a whole. Uh, so in, the mid, in what we call today the Middle East, into even Central Asia and North Africa. So, and later on, the Italians probably have copied this from the Italian city-states, Venice, uh, Genoa, uh, uh, maybe Florence as well, have copied this from the Islam by having interactions with Islamic uh, uh, Jews mm-hmm. or with Islamic merchants, and they've used it around the Mediterranean as a whole, including the Western Mediterranean. The Italians have used it all the way to uh, France, you can see 
in Marseille, for example, uh, evidence for this. You can, and then uh, you see a use of commander type uh, uh, companies also in the Iberian Peninsula, in Barcelona, and other uh, cities. So, so the Italians have kind of made mm. the leap forward in expanding this form all the way to the Western Mediterranean. That's so interesting, Ron. And I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you went there. Um, so, what caliphate? would that have been if you if you know offhand where in the records the 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 equity concept starts to come into place do do you know by chance what caliphate and 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 if if not do you know approximately like what century that that would have started to form a good question i'm not an islamic scholar i read the literature as a second-hand consumer of the literature there is some debate some scholars argue that uh, one could find an indication for the existence of a uh, kirad in the Quran itself. Some even argue, somewhat speculatively, that the fact that the practice was alluded to in the Quran suggests that it is a pre-Islamic practice of Arabian uh, uh, um, overland merchants, uh, traders. Mm-hmm. Others see more clear indications for the existence of a curad in later uh, Islamic texts, uh, probably in the 9th century, uh, maybe by the Umayyad uh, mm-hmm. period, clearly established. So one of the three key uh, methodological uh, problems here is that you have different types of sources out of which you can read uh, at level, different levels of certainty what was going on. So if you want to be fully certain, you'll probably put it no earlier than the 9th century or even 10th century. If you are a somewhat speculative scholar, you might date it to the 6th century, 5th century, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, CE, as part of the pre-Islamic practice in Arabia. Yeah, and what it, what's also important to bear in mind is that in several centuries in, this, in, this, in, in parts of the Eastern Mediterranean, Islamic-oriented um, so caliphates uh, had hegemony in many parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. So a lot of the trade um, would have been uh, coming through uh, Islamic oriented, um, would have been coming through caliphates. Yeah. So if you're talking about kind of long distance Euro Asian trade, let's say Chinese goods or Indian goods, they couldn't have made their way into the Mediterranean without crossing Islamic lands. Uh, and uh, during the golden age of Islamic caliphates, a single Islamic political units have controlled big land masses through which it was essential for these goods to make their way into the Mediterranean. Later on, there was some fragmentation of the Islamic unit, political unity, and uh, so so and, and the Byzantines were there as well. So remember, the Byzantines were trying to be a connector without reliance on Islam. Uh, in some cases, they had to connect further north in order to get Asian goods, not through Islamic lands. They had to go to the Black Sea and to the uh, mm-hmm. kind of Asian steppes, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in order to get uh, uh, Islamic goods. As we go on in time, all of those Europeans who wanted to get, particularly after the fall of uh, Constantinople, but even with the, the shrinking of the Byzantine Empire, Asian goods had to be, whenever Europeans wanted, Latins or Europeans wanted to buy Asian goods, they had to buy them 
from uh, Islamic militants in some uh, hubs in the Eastern Mediterranean. Let's say Aleppo is the prime example. Alexandria is another example. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and there are a few more. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, um, I want to clarify then, Ron, because you mentioned a, uh, a couple, uh, a few terms here, and I want to clarify what these uh, terms mean. So you mentioned the, um, and apologies if the pronunciation is slightly off, but you, you mentioned Mudaba, Nuba, Nudaba. You also mentioned Mudaba. Yeah. Okay, and you and, also and Kirad, which are yes, more or less that was the other one. Yeah, can you, yes, so can you can, can you distinguish those? Yes. Right. Oh, no, it's okay. Can you distinguish those two terms? Yeah, so, so again, I'm not an expert on this, mm -hmm. but based on the literature, my sense is that we're talking about the same organizational form. Different terms were used. More than two terms could be found in Islam. I mentioned only two of the terms. Different uh, terms were used in different Islamic territories and in different Islamic jurisprudential uh, schools. Uh, the Sunnite Islam has four major uh, jurisprudential schools. So each of them was using different terms. But we're, if we're talking about business-wise or economically-wise, or these are, this is the same idea, splitting the profits between the traveler and the investor. Okay, so both terms generally mean the same thing. The same thing. The, the uh, Mudaba and the Kirad. Exactly, the same thing, yes. Okay. And the command, um, uh, uh, the Italian command means also more or less the same thing. There are some variations, but the basic abstract idea is the same in all of these. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting when you look at historical topics, right? Because the concept of an equity type of arrangement to create more incentive for other parties seems almost obvious in business environments today, but may not have always been obvious to ancestors, right? If we're going back thousands of, of years. So it's interesting when you when you find out uh, one of potentially the first citation of that use in the world. Yeah, yeah I, I think, in, again, in domestic contexts, you could find it earlier. Let's say corpse sharing is not that different from the concept that we are talking about. That is, you have a tenant on the land, the tenant is working the land and splitting the profits with a land, with a formal uh, landowner who could sometimes be an absentee landowner. So, so mm -hmm. the idea of splitting a, a, a whatever you grow on a land was there before the idea of investing in trade. Trade is somewhat more complicated because in trade mm -hmm. you combine a, a, both the labor and the finance a, elements together, and you have to provide because you cannot directly uh, control your agent you have to provide a mandate in advance and you have to deal with what would be the consequences if let's say your traveling agent would not obey your orders if he'll uh, 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 do something that you did not maybe bought on a higher price in the market maybe bought different goods will you be liable will you have still to pay will he be breaching his duties towards you so so it, when you are talking about longer distance maritime uh, context things are more complicated and you have to think of more uh, scenarios in order to create these organizational forms than you need when you're just dealing with corp sharing of agricultural let's say uh, uh, field yeah um and you 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 had sent me i think it was a chapter you you had sent me right over email prior to the the show? Yeah, it that, was an article which is based on a chapter or, or, or a section in the book. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and why I mentioned that is uh, 
because uh, when I was going through it, um, one, one of the one of the one of the concerns back then that you wrote about was simply um, the the party the, the, uh, that's that's uh, on the voyage might not come back. They might just they might just take the goods and go somewhere and not not come back at all. So there was a lot of uh, risk. And that was my opportunity to plug your book again in the show, Ron, Going the Distance. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks very much for yeah, your yeah. service. And definitely, uh, absconding is an imminent issue. But the ways to mitigate this possibility of just defecting with the goods, and particularly when you get high-value kind of goods, is that often you cannot find your way into a different civilization that easily. If you're not speaking their language, if they're of different religion, if mm-hmm. you left your family behind. One of the prime examples I use in this book that you've just mentioned is of a, a, a merchant network based in New Julfa in Isfahan, a merchant network of Armenians, modern day Iran, and they traded all over the place, from Manila in the Philippines to Amsterdam and London. So the agents could defect in theory but they left behind their family members. And the family members served as, in a way, a bond. If you will defect, will be, mm-hmm. your family members will have to pay for you or, or will not be treated well by our society in New Jerusalem. So in a way, in a more traditional, uh, personally based society, defection is not an easy option. It does exist as an option, but often religious norms and social norms and sanctions are limiting the possibility that this defection will actually take place. Okay. So what comes next as we're going through this uh, evolution of companies in the Eastern Mediterranean? Where do you want to go next? Are we at the actual more formal corporations or is there something you want to cover before then? No, I think that we are now, so let's say, if you are now with the commander as it has developed in the Islamic Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, and the, the Italian commander as it has developed in the uh, Italian peninsula, in particularly in northern Italian city-states. Now we have the commander at, at hand for those merchants who would like to use it. We still have earlier forms that are being used. The Ceylon is not disappear altogether. You can choose whether to use a commander or to use a Ceylon. In some cases, you use a partnership which is more symmetric, in which everybody is willing to travel uh, uh, either together or separately or to different destinations. You have uh, family films. In some cases, you have extended families that can do a lot uh, of mileage. If you are thinking about the Medici and the Peruzzi mm-hmm. and some other families in uh, the Italian city-states. So, so we have all of these choices around. And you have the uh, uh, mercantile networks, such as the one I've mentioned, of the Armenians based in Isfahan, uh, Iran. You have similar uh, Jewish merchant network based in Cairo and Fustat, Old Cairo. So you have all of these options around, different organizational forms. Some were carried uh, all the way forward from antiquity. Some were used by the Phoenicians and the Greeks, uh, uh, the Hellenistic uh, 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 merchants and the Roman merchants. Some were invented by Muslims, some were invented in Italy of the late Middle Ages. And now a new form enters the field mm. in the 16th century. And I think that we are uh, well positioned now in order to appreciate this new form 
that we call the corporation. Rather than a company, which is a term that is loosely used to designate different types of firms, enterprises, organizational forms, a corporation is a more a, a specific, more concrete legal idea. Its origins is not in trade. Its origins is uh, uh, most likely in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church and its canon law have probably conceptualized and created this concept of co the corporation as a still separate legal personality, separate legal entity. And they use the corporation as what I term the constitutional framework of the Roman Catholic Church. So the corporation was a way for large-scale cooperation within this large-scale organization called the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. It uh, created the, the framework for a delegation of power, for the election of popes, and for the election of other archbishops and bishops and other officials in, in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the corporation was used for owning collectively property, let's say, as in religious orders or in monasteries. So this is the birth ground or uh, the, the environment in which the legal concept of the corporation as a separate legal entity, which can own property, which can uh, uh, delegate power based on majority decision to heads of the corporation. This is where it was formed. Later on, it was copied and used in different contexts in uh, Southern and Western Europe. Uh, for example, in municipalities, the Italian city-states that were mentioned before needed some sort of a legal platform for their independent existence from king and from popes. And they've used the corporation as a way for holding property together collectively, let's say for Venice or for Genoa or for Pisa, and then also for appointing mayors and councillors and running the municipality. And the next step was in universities and colleges. They've used the same uh, uh, platform, mm -hmm. the separate legal personality with its various uh, uh, legal capacities uh, in order to run the universities and colleges all the way from Bologna to Oxford and Cambridge and beyond. And now we are getting into a stage which is uh, 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 leading back to our context of maritime trade we're getting into the stage in which guilds that predated the corporation are being formalized as corporations. Guilds that were kind of probably organically developed from below had to be formalized legally. And the way for formalizing guilds was through the use of the corporation as an organizational framework for those guilds. So now the mm. guild is a corporation the members of the guild are taking part in this process of delegating powers within the uh, organizational structure of the guild. The guild can own some of the property. The guild might have uh, assembly halls and inns and warehouses and maybe consulates overseas. But still, like in the merchant guilds, the same applies to the formalized merchant guilds that is in England called the regulated corporation, the regulated corporation and the merchant guild are organizational forms in which each merchant trades at its own risk based on its own capital and wealth and risk. So, so, so you have the guild or the regulated corporation 
as an infrastructure, a common infrastructure, but underneath this common infrastructure, you have individual merchants conducting their trade. And this is the first use of a, a, the corporate form for trade through the Merchant Guild, renamed in England the Regulated Corporation. And this is the way in which you can find, let's say, English trade being organized with, with a short haul, short distance trade with Western Europe. So when the English trade with the low countries or with France or with the German states, they use the regulated corporation. Each merchant coming from London or from any of the port cities has its own goods, he travels by himself, he employs his own agents, and this works quite fine for this long distance, uh, short, sorry, short distance trade. Once the English are getting involved in a longer distance trade, let's say with the Levant, which connects us best to our story, or with Russia, with Moscow, Moscow, Moscow uh, they realize that this kind of guild-like solution is not good enough. They have to pull together more assets, more capital, because the, the trade is more complicated, more risky, and more costly. In order to cross the threshold into the Eastern Mediterranean, a significant investment of money has to be made, and the way to do this was by the establishment of the Levant Company in 1581. And the Levant Company was as more, most likely, for at least uh, uh, some episodes in its history, the first joint stock company to trade in the Mediterranean. At about the same time, the Moscovy or Russia Company that was formed a few years before, 1553, maybe 1555, has created a similar framework for trading with Russia. They were both probably trying to do the same thing, get Asian goods, buy Asian goods without going all the way to Asia. They couldn't go all the way to China or to India. That was too far, too expensive, too long, too risky. So they bought Asian goods either in Aleppo or Alexandria or Constantinople or some other uh, ports in the Eastern Mediterranean or in Russia, maybe along the Volga, and maybe even trying to go further south along the Volga in order to get to those uh, middlemen that could sell them Asian goods. And uh, so, so we are now in an intrigue phase in which the English are trying to go all the way to the Levant, but are not trying yet to go all the way to India. And the Levant company is serving this function. The Levant company had its ups and downs in the last two decades of the 16th century. It encountered various political problems and various uh, financial problems. The joint stock model in which they collected money from various investors and pulled it together didn't work that well for them. And they were experimenting with different versions of this model for about 20 years. And then 1600 is a very important uh, uh, end point maybe for our conversation and a starting point for a different type of conversation. In 1600, the English East India Company was formed. The English East India Company was trying to bypass the Eastern Mediterranean, to bypass the Levant, to bypass the dependence on uh, Islamic and Arab merchants by going around the Cape of Gold all the way to uh, Southern India and maybe beyond uh, with aspiration to reach uh, Southeast Asia, uh, modern day uh, uh, Indonesia, 
Uh, so the East India Company was using the model experimented by uh, the Levant Company and the Russia Company, the model of a joint stock corporation, in which you have passive investors, a common pool of assets, and, and the entire trade is being done under a single account, rather than each merchant has its own account, its own trade, and having a, a, some sort of a framework above these merchants that facilitates and assists these merchants, here you have a common pool of assets, a common risk, and the East India Company that was chartered by Queen Elizabeth I in, on December 31st, 1600, a very symbolic day, is uh, taking whatever was tried on by the Levant companies doing, and doing it on a larger scale. More investors, rather than maybe a few dozens of investors, uh, the East India Company is using hundreds of investors. The Dutch East India Company that was formed to the, two years later has around 1,500 investors, and they are just bypassing the Levant, sending ships all the way to Asia, a few ships a year, to voyage that could take two, three, or four years, and was subjected to much higher risks on the one hand, and higher profits on the other. Because, in a way, the Levant merchants that were trading in the Levant company, uh, and any of the other merchants, Italian merchants, let's say, trading with the Levant, had to buy the, the Asian goods from Muslim merchants that already made their profit. They could not buy the goods, let's say the spices, the pepper, or clothes, you know, the price in which it was sold in Southern India. They had to pay for not only transportation costs, but also for the profits made by those Islamic merchants. When you go straight to India, you increase your uh, margin of profits. You can buy at the source at lower uh, uh, prices. Okay, and um, thank you for uh, elaborating on all, all that, uh, Ron. I could speak with you for several hours about this <laughs> about this topic. Um, I want to go back um, because uh, we're going to have to, unfortunately, um, we're going to have to wind down the episode uh, in a few minutes to keep it under an hour for everybody. Um, I want to go back and ask about uh, a feature of the corporation. I'm going to ask about the, a question about the guilds. I'm going to ask about the private sector, a private sector type question. I'm kind of doing air quotes, um, but a private private sector type question, and then we'll work our way to wrapping up the conversation. Okay, um, one of the features of corporations in present day is li limited liability. So you know the person or persons, like a partnership forming the corporation, they have some protection because it's the corporation entering into agreements, not the individuals. In those early uh, years, I think you mentioned the 16th century, the 1500s. Did that feature exist? That limit, that concept of limited liability with uh, with uh, corporations, to your knowledge? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, a, a question I just published an article about last year. <laughs> I didn't plug it in. You may you ask me. <laughs> you think I threw him a you, <laughs> <laughs> you think I threw Ron a softball there, but I really didn't know that. <laughs> So there is an ongoing debate about this. Some, some economic historians, maybe some legal historians, argue that you can find the limited liability feature, which, as you said correctly, is a very important feature of a modern-day corporation. One cannot imagine the modern-day corporations without limited liability. So some scholars argue that you can find this feature in the very first business, joint stock business corporations. My view is different. My view is that 
the feature as we know it today shows up only in the 19 and even uh, being fully implemented only in the early 20th century. Uh, uh, and I'll try to clarify my answer in the sense that some of what we have in mind as limited liability is in fact an artifact of the separate legal personality of corporations. So let's say once the directors transact, let's say when they buy on credit, when they borrow money, they do not do it in a corporation on their own capacity, but rather on the corporate capacity. So this is a contract made by the corporation and the directors are not liable, but the corporation is liable. So, 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 so can you indeed, the corporation is important in this sense, but if we are talking about the full uh, 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 meaning of limited liability, this full meaning of limited liability can manifest itself only uh, uh, once you have at least two important uh, uh, preconditions. One of them is that you have significant uh, debt finance for corporations. That is, the finance of the corporation does not rely only on equity investment, but also on debt. That is, you have significant creditors that might want to claim their debts. And the early corporations didn't have such significant creditors. It was equity investment, which means that you can lose whatever you investment, but invest, but not more than this. If you invested in ships going to, a, a, let's say, the Eastern Mediterranean, and these ships have sunk or were parked, or pirates have captured them, you lose whatever you invest invested in them. You'll not lose more than this. If you have uh, used lending, uh, 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 that is, debt finance, the creditors might expect you to repay. If you don't have creditors, no one will ask you to repay anything beyond what you invest in. That's one point. The other point is that at this point in time, you do not have the, yet the concept of corporate bankruptcy or corporate insolvency. Or, or, or the winding up of a corporation because corporations were created by rulers. Queen Elizabeth has chartered the East India Company or the Levant Company, and only Queen Elizabeth can dissolve this company. The creditors cannot dissolve the company in order to collect money out of the, pri uh, uh, the private uh, uh, assets of the shareholders. This was a non-available option at the time because there was no way to Kind of get rid of the legal personality feature and go behind it and into the deep pockets of the investors. So these two preconditions have emerged only later on. So what we see here uh, in the late 16th century and early 17th century are, 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 feature, uh, are, are manifestations of the legal personality or separate legal entity feature of the corporation that are important and create separation between the shareholders and others but are not full limited liability. Okay, um, I want okay the the guilds. Yeah. So, comparing to um, in in Canada, for instance, the the, the U.S. Um, many places, the U.K. There's associations. Associations are run by uh, its members that are uh, typically, uh, if it's a, a a business type association, uh, by other businesses. Is that so? Who were who owned? So when you when you're mentioning guilds, um, it's sounding a lot more. It's it's sounding um, a lot more important to actual trade than associations would be uh, uh, in modern terms. Although uh, it's not to say associations aren't important, 
they, they, you know, they're used for lobbying, for networking. There's all these different uses that associations have, but they're not used as much uh, for trade as the, what you were describing with guilds. Would you loosely say that guilds were associations um, or not? And, and uh, who, who, owned, who owned the guilds? Yeah, good question. Yeah. So, so today we have this clear distinction between for-profit associations or corporations and non-profit ones. So in some of these modern associations will be considered non-profit ones. They are indirectly providing maybe services to a sector, providing lobbying services or coordination services, as you said, but they, these associations are, are, are not meant to make profits. Whereas the guilds themselves uh, uh, did not intend to make profits. The members were trying to make profits out of the membership in the guild. That is, the guild provided them with a kind of services that would allow them to make profits. So, so if you are, uh, 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 let's say, uh, if you are a, a, a merchant, a group of merchants trading with the Levant or with the Lock countries, you'll be lobbying together for Queen Elizabeth, for, uh, to Queen Elizabeth for a variety of privileges. You might form a warehouse, but the guild itself would not be a for-profit thing. Often you'll have to pay your dues, your membership in the guild. The guild will be owned, in a sense, by its members, by the merchants, but it will not be splitting dividends to the merchants. To the contrary, they might, as I said, have to pay in order to maintain the existence of the guild, but indirectly it provides them with means by which they can draw private profits into their own uh, 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 personal account, uh, into their own, uh, let's say, personal trade account. So, so, so I think that generally speaking, if I try to wrap up, the clear distinction between public and private and between for-profit and non-profit that exists today did not exist in the 16th and 17th century uh, uh, in, in a clear-cut way, and things were more blurred and more mixed. It's a segue for my last question, Ron. <laughs> and again, I could spend uh, hours speaking with you about this topic, and uh, I'd be interested in, in uh, if you're interested, having you come back on the show, and maybe we drill down on one of these periods and speak more in depth about guilds or, you know, like more pre-modern stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so your segue there was around the private sector. So in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean area, um, is there is there a point in time? Is there a specific company that shows up that you can think of that it's clearly a private sector corporation at that point that is uh, arm's length? It's it's unassociated. It's detached uh, from a from a from a uh, crown or from a government. So so in how we would define a private sector corporation in today's terms. Um, is there one that comes to mind that is that is the first example? And if if there isn't like a kind of a first example that comes to mind, uh, what century does that show up? And do you know, do you know, happen to know what area of the Eastern Mediterranean? So it was not easy for small scale merchants to get out of the holding of political entities. So they were subjected to these political entities that served as their home bases. They had to pay taxes, their families were there, and to some extent they were controlled by these uh, political entities. But I think the two phenomena that they are unfolding, let's say, between the 13th and maybe 16th century have uh, created a, a more loose connection between 
private enterprises and political entities. One of them is a, a, a fragmentation of the political uh, map of, let's say, Italy. You have smaller political uh, units in the different city-states of Italy. So that's one uh, uh, mm-hmm. element in the story. The other is that firms, companies are getting larger and larger. We've mentioned the Medici's before, or we can mention the Fugers of Augsburg, southern Germany. Once you have larger firms and smaller political entities, these firms can maneuver between different political entities and achieve some level of autonomy, of independence from any specific political entity. Because if a specific political entity would put on them demands that they do not want to follow, they can just bypass these political entities and do their business elsewhere. So they have this type of form shopping opportunity that results from the fact that political entities are smaller and firms are larger. And this gives leverage to those uh, firms such as the Medici's and the Fugers to uh, uh, move around more freely. But if you, let's say, talk about the Fugers and the Habsburgs, once the Habsburgs were so powerful, the Fugers could not just ignore the Habsburgs. When the Habsburgs wanted to, to borrow money from the Fugers, the Fugers had to lend the money. Really, they didn't like the terms or thought that this is too risky. So it's all a matter of balance of power. The larger the firm, the smaller the political entity, the, the more privatized is the firm in modern senses. Hmm. Uh, what century in the Eastern Mediterranean, so, like the Levant, so like the Levant, for instance, when when do corporate private sector corporations show up? So I think that if you're talking, let's say, about the Genoese and the Venetians when they're up in the Eastern Mediterranean, they enjoy a relatively uh, high level of independence hmm. in the 13th, 14th and 15th century. They can form their own, let's say, uh, uh, colonies in some Greek islands, or, or they can form their own headquarters in some Islamic cities, or, or have some uh, delegation or consulate in Constantinople, which the local rulers cannot fully control. So I, I would say that the political entities like Venice and Genoa support the merchants coming out of Venice and uh, Genoa to the Eastern Mediterranean because these city-states were dominated by mercantile elites rather than landed elites at some point. And secondly, that the local rulers in those Eastern Mediterranean trade destinations of these Italian merchants uh, found it hard to uh, uh, block or, or, or to resist the demands and expectations of these merchants because these merchants First of all, could move around from one uh, uh, market or, or port to another. And secondly, because these merchants were backed by the uh, cities, either Venice or Genoa or other Italian cities. Okay. It's been great chatting with you, Ron. Thanks for coming on the show. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks. And I hope to talk to you again and I'll follow you. Your podcasts, I realize that they are interesting and I keep following them and advertise them to others. Uh, thank, thank you, Ron. Uh, so again, everybody, if uh, anyone would like to pick up uh, Dr. Harris's book that I mentioned at the start of the episode, Going the Distance, Eurasian Trade and the Rise of the Business Corporation, 1400 to 1700. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Ron and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thanks and have a good day. Bye. 
Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.